Happy Eastern Orthodox Easter, everybody. As many of you know, I've half-jokingly changed denominations to the Eastern Orthodox Church because they celebrate Christmas on January 7th, which is my birthday. So I'm considering this Easter too. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. And we're going to begin in verse 35. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? There's a question. If Jesus were walking by, this is a little thought experiment for you all. If Jesus were walking by and he paused and he called you forward and stood you right in front of him and said, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? That is the question I hope to wrestle with today. But before we dive into that, I need a couple of brave volunteers. <laughs> Mike and Kim, please come forward. <laughs> I kind of figured Kim would be one of the volunteers. Go ahead and take a seat. <laughs> Trust is a key word here. Okay, so before we begin our little game, here's what you two need to know. You two are in separate rooms from each other. You can't communicate with each other in any way. That is the setting for the game. So, here we go. Kim, Mike, you two just robbed a liquor store. <laughs> and the con- <laughs> You okay, Danny? And the consequence for robbing a liquor store is 10 years in prison. However, you two did a really good job. You got out of the scene of the crime, leaving no evidence, and you got away in your getaway car and you started speeding towards the border, which is where you made your mistake. You got pulled over on a routine traffic stop, and Mike, who was driving, decided to put his foot on the gas and keep going. And eventually they subdued the car, you two resisted arrest, and then we took you into the police station and held you in separate rooms. Now, I am a young detective, and I know that there is no evidence for you two robbing the liquor store, but I have a hunch. So, I'm going to go to each of your rooms and give you one of two options. Either you can confess to robbing the liquor store rat on your partner who was in the getaway car, or you can keep silent. 
if you both confess to the robbery and rat on your partner, I will be merciful. Instead of throwing you both in jail for 10 years, I will cut your sentence in half. You're going to jail for five years. If you both keep silent, well, I have no evidence that you two robbed the liquor store, but you made one heck of a getaway, so I could probably manage to throw you in jail for a year or two. But still, way less than the full 10 years. That's if you both keep quiet. Here's where it gets interesting. If one of you two confesses and the other stays silent, well, the person who confessed, your testimony is worth more to me, so I'll let you go free. But I'm going to throw your partner in jail for the full 10-year sentence. So those are your options. Confess or keep your mouth shut. What will you do? What will your partner do? Here's how this is going to work. If you choose to confess, when I count to three, you're going to raise the green piece of paper that I handed you. If you choose to keep silent, you are going to raise the red piece of paper. Do you two both know what you're going to do? <laughs> All right. On the count of three, one, two, three. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, both of you. Raise your hand if you would have done that. Raise your hand if you would have kept quiet. <laughs> we have a split. We have a split 50-50 thing, I think. So, when you're playing this game, there are two strategies that you can take up. Either you can use strategy number one or strategy number two. Strategy number one, all you care about is yourself. Just trying to save your own pie. You want what's best for you, and you don't really care about your partner. Which do you think you're going to pick if, and there we go, which do you think you're going to pick if you want to save your own skin? You're going to confess. And there are three reasons you're going to confess and rat on your partner. One, because it staves off that worst case scenario of 10 years in jail. You don't have to worry about the nightmare scenario. Two, there's a chance you could go free. No consequences. You could walk out of jail. Third, because even if the worst comes to worst, you still got the five years. So there are three reasons. I, don't, I didn't remember the third one. There are three reasons why you would confess if all you cared about was yourself. However, if you cared about the greater good if what you wanted to accomplish was the collective benefit of both of you, which would you do? You would keep quiet. Because if you both kept quiet, then you would get the lowest jail sentence for you two collectively. You'd both go to jail for a year or two. That's nothing. That doesn't even add up to five years that one of you would serve if you confessed. So, those are the two strategies. As we go through the Easter season, we are faced with the same choice when we come to the cross of Jesus. We can either choose to look out for number one. We could pursue our own self-interest, get what we want, or we can set our own interests aside and we can pursue the kingdom of God 
and fall to our knees in reverence beneath the risen Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Today, I want to look at two stories, one about each option, and they both take place when Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. Please turn in your Gospels to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Time out. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We just read a story where they, Jesus was walking to Jerusalem and someone cried out, have mercy on us. So let's keep reading. When he saw them, Jesus said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean, but the other nine? Where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. This is a story about 10 men who came to Jesus. And nine of them came to Jesus just so that they could get what they wanted out of him. Well, how do we know this? Because as soon as they were healed, of their leprosy, they went on with their merry, they went on their merry little way, continued on with what they were doing. There was no change. There was no transformation. There was no effort to even come back and give thanks to the Savior who had healed them, who had saved them from leprosy. You know, one of the best indicators of whether you are coming to Christ out of self-interest or coming to Christ for the greater good of the gospel is in a transformed life. It's in a transformed life. It's to look at the fruit, to look at whether your heart has been changed. Why do I say this? Because fruit comes from pruning and transformation comes from denying yourself, carrying your cross and being born anew. And you cannot do that without putting to death parts of your soul that you happen to like. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to look inward and figure out what those may be. It could be unforgiveness for another person. The call of the gospel is to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you and to love those who do you wrong. But letting go of unforgiveness, if you've ever had to do it, is really because you want to hold on to it. That's one example of many that I could give you. But transformation comes from denying yourself, carrying your cross, and being born anew. You know, the truth is, you can, in fact, become a Christian 
because of your own self-interest. And that's just not me saying that. I have some evidence to support my claim. If you look at the United States of America, three out of every four people take the name of Christian. Three out of four. As you're walking on the streets, if you see four people, three of them statistically take the name of Christ. What are the differences between the Christians and the non-Christians? Well, let's look at the tale of the statistics. It turns out there are two stories at work here. On the broad level, if you look at the whole, if you look at the 75% of Americans who claim to be Christians, they don't look all that different. Similar rates of divorce, similar rates of addiction to pornography, similar rates, this surprised me, of abortion. Similar attitudes towards cussing and irreverence, if you look at the data. Similar rates of drug usage and addiction, even. Doesn't look a whole lot different. But if you look closer within that umbrella of the 75% Christians, you will find a small, and I'm talking about 10% of people who actually do look different, who do look different than their non-Christian counterparts. People who do not have do not get divorced at the same rate as the population, do not have these attitudes about cussing, drug usage, so on and so forth. So we see two tales here. We see that many people take the name Christian and there isn't a whole lot of fruit. And what does that tell you? Well, it could potentially tell you that these people are coming to Jesus simply for what they can get. Look at the way that we tend to preach the gospel in the United States of America. Come to Jesus. Have your sins forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. You can get your prayers answered. And in some churches, you can get wealthy. That is sugar. That is simply coming to Jesus for your own self-interest. Why do I become a Christian? Because I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. It has nothing to do with setting aside yourself and doing the good kingdom work of God. And that is why you see stories throughout the Gospels of people who come to Jesus, get what they want, and go on their merry little way. Because we still have that same temptation today. You know, we just celebrated Easter. You know how many people saw Jesus in the flesh after he rose from the dead? Anybody know? 500 people. 500 people personally saw the uprisen Savior. They knew that he rose from the dead. They knew that he had conquered death. You know how many were in the upper room praying when the Holy Spirit came? 120. That means that there are many people who saw the truth of who Jesus was, and they weren't in that room praying. They weren't with the disciples. They weren't in community. They weren't worshiping God in the temple. They had gone on their merry little way. I've talked about this before, but in my time at Trout Creek, you see this all the time. You see kids who come to camp week after week, and they're like, we get this real excitement about Jesus and we want to do the will of God. But then we go home and nothing's changed because we go back to doing what we were doing before. And then you come back to camp, get that little shot on the arm again. And eventually you're like, okay, something in my heart is not changing. I'm beginning to wonder if this gospel has any power at all. So I would urge you and caution you to 
look inwardly. What are your motives for coming to Jesus this Easter season? Let's go back to that story that we didn't finish in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Does anybody know where Jesus was going as he passed Jericho? He was going to Jerusalem. What was going to happen to him when he got to Jerusalem? He was going to be crucified. So Jesus, filled with the Spirit, in Luke chapter 9, begins to make his journey towards Jerusalem in the sweltering Middle Eastern heat, walking towards his crucifixion. And everything in Luke chapter 9, all the way to Luke chapter 19, verse 28, is about his journey to Jerusalem. And it's some of the most hard-hitting stuff in all of the Gospels, in my opinion. So Jesus is walking to his death. And a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. It's very important to note that this man was blind for two reasons. First of all, because of what blindness meant for you. Every single illness and infirmity in the Bible known to man before Jesus had been miraculously healed before and after Jesus too with the disciples. People had their leprosy cleansed by the apostles after Jesus. People were healed and restored. There were miraculous things done before Jesus. Never had a blind man regained his sight, though. And that leads me to reason number two. The reason no blind man ever regained his sight is because blindness isn't just physical. They considered it a metaphor for the condition of your soul. You were blind. You were blind to the reality of God. You are blind to the community of people around you in Jerusalem. You cannot see in every sense. The light is not getting through to you. So this guy is in dire straits. Never before had a blind man regained his sight. And as he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was going on. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he wasted no time. He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people tried to get him to be quiet because Jesus was just trying to walk by. But he yelled out all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stood still and ordered the man be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you. He said, Lord, let me see again. Let me see. Same request, it would seem, as the lepers. We want to be healed. We want our leprosy gone. But what happens when Jesus grants him? Immediately, he regained his sight, verse 43. And what does he do? He followed Jesus. He glorified God, and all the people, when they saw it, praised God. It is clear that this man wasn't asking Jesus to see. He was asking to see Jesus. And we know that because of the fruit. We know that because immediately, as soon as he regained his sight, he began to shout forth in worship and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And everyone who saw glorified God. How would you like your testimony to be? People looked at my life and they 
gave glory to God. That's the result of a life transformed by the gospel. That is a life committed to following Jesus and is eternally grateful for all that he has done for you. As we conclude this Easter season, I wanted to kind of go before Easter. We talk about Palm Sunday. We have Black Friday, Good Friday, and and we have Easter. Um, But now that Easter's over, I wanted to take a look back at what happened right before those big three days. The prequel, if you will, because I'm a big Star Wars fan. We talk about the prequel after the originals come out. And um, I want to bring to your attention this young man who was begging. You know, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is truly mind-boggling. And every time I think I understand it fully or get it, I am surprised. Because when Jesus was crucified on that cross, he was crowned king, king over this world. He ripped it out of the hands of the evil powers that be and took all the consequence for sin upon his shoulders and was crowned king. That means sin, sickness, and death, they are now losing. And Jesus' kingdom is expanding. His will is now beginning to be done in the hearts of his followers And as they go forth and share the gospel to the four corners of the earth, they are coming to know the goodness of God. And they are continuing to pass that on. And the Holy Spirit is going forth and doing miraculous things. And one day that is going to culminate in the restoration of all things. Everything is going to be made new. Death will no longer have a hold on the human race. Sin will no longer have the final say about who you worship, what you do, what you think, or even how you feel. It will be the love and grace of God. And that comes about through obedience and through the love that we have for God. It is so much more broad than I get to go somewhere nice when I die. The gospel is so much bigger than that. It is so much more powerful. It is so much more inspiring, I would say, because who was ever inspired by, well, I can get some prayers answered and go somewhere nice. They're inspired by, guess what? I have seen Jesus and I have been changed. I have seen him. My metaphorical blindness that we all had before we met Jesus is gone and I truly see his glory. And I am doing, and I am following him. I am discipling under him. I am learning from him. And bit by bit, pieces of my behavior that are under control of sin are being brought under control of God. And I am walking in step with the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel. That is the Easter story. And so we begin, we end with the same question that we asked ourselves at the beginning. Jesus were standing before you right now, and he were to say, my child, what do you want me to do for you? How are you going to respond? Let's have a closing word of prayer. Lord, you are good. We love you and we cannot fathom all that you have done and are continuing to do on our behalf. You call us into a great adventure to come follow you.
You call us out of the sin and the sickness and the death that was eating away at us and are bringing us into life and are transforming us. I pray that as we continue to move on from this Easter season, that we would be richly blessed by your presence and that we would be transformed, that people wouldn't just look at us and say, that person prayed a prayer, that person goes to church every Sunday, but that person has been transformed. There is fruit in their life. There is Christ-likeness that has a hold in their soul. We pray these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.